It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode includes discussion of murder and violence. Among the famous images in the Burger Chef murder case, the sketches are iconic. They're up there with that haunting quadriptych of the four smiling victims. The newspaper photos of the stark, wintry woods where the bodies were found. And those awful, alien-looking clay busts. On November 20th, 1978, days after the murders, police released two sketches. The next day, the Indianapolis News reported that the sketches were composite works drawn from the recollections of three possible witnesses who were said to have been placed under hypnosis before working with police artists. Both sketches show white men. One has a full beard and a mustache, thick rounded eyebrows, and long hair that hangs in waves over his forehead and ears. He's got a nose that almost looks like it's been broken before, and dark eyes. He could be a hippie, or a mountain man, or a biker, or just a guy with facial hair. That's the bearded man. His companion is the clean-shaven man. He's sporting a more clean-cut look, with hair that's neatly combed and parted far to the left side of his head. He's young, with a long face tapering into a narrow chin. He gives off a more polished, square impression than his bearded companion. Last week, we told you about some things that may make you reconsider the modern-day investigation into the Burger Chef murders. 
This week, we'll be sharing an interview that we believe will have you rethinking one of the foundational elements of the case. Because those sketches were based on the descriptions of at least three witnesses. And one of those witnesses now says that she was lying. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we're The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. We're continuing the multi-part look into the Burger Chef murders we began last year. Each week, we will be presenting you with new information and context about what happened as part of our mini-series, You Never Can Forget. We don't just rely on what we've been told or what we've read. We have worked this case ourselves. We decided to do this podcast so we can tell you what we've learned and even clear up a few misconceptions. We're the murder sheet, and this is You Never Can Forget, The Witness. This season on You Never Can Forget, we'll be featuring a number of interviews with people who were in and around the Burger Chef when Jane Freet, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons vanished. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Mary Ryan. She was one half of the couple who said they saw two men skulking behind the restaurant that night. Kevin's talked to Mary before, but that was before I was involved with the case and before the murder sheet was around. So we figured we'd interview her for the show, and ask her a range of questions about what she remembers of the case, and that fateful night. Hi, can I speak with Mary, please? This is Jay. Hi, this is uh, Kevin Greenlee. Oh, hey! Oh, wow, I completely forgot about that today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of caught me off guard, but that's all right. It's all good. <laughs> and I'm here with uh, my uh, partner, uh, Anya Kane. Hi, Mary. It's so great to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you, too, over the phone. <laughs> I know. Mary later told us she was a bit nervous to talk. I know I was, too. It's always nerve-wracking to speak to people who've been part of this case. She also told us that she wasn't sure she could remember very much. That's another issue we've run into a fair amount, given that so many years have passed. Yeah, that is so long ago. You know, my memory is, <laughs> you know, fuzzy on everything. We kept talking, though. I was curious to learn about what Mary was like back in 78 as a teenager. Tell us a bit what you were like at 16 and sort of like, what was 78 like for Mary Ryan? You know, it you're a 16 year old girl in high school what are, what, what are you up to I guess yeah uh, my life that was about the well uh, at 15 uh, my life kind of took a nosedive um, you know I had some some uh, I guess you'd say abuse happen uh, and didn't know how to deal with it so I turned to drugs and alcohol uh, you know I smoked a lot of pot it was mostly hot and drinking uh you know so i was uh i had got gotten expelled from school and i was going to a night school up ben davis night school and that's where i met george actually the george she refers to is george nichols you heard from him last season in our first episode you never can forget the night what a, what I'm just curious because we met George. What about uh, you know how did you meet him in that night class and and sort of like what what did you guys connect over? Uh, 
I don't, you know, I don't remember the specifics uh, about it. Uh, I just remember meeting him at, at Ben Davis night school. Um, we might have been in the same class. We uh, seems like we had a class together, uh, and we just uh, sparked up a conversation and um, ended up liking each other. So we started dating. In 2018, Mary and George reunited for the first time in decades. They were both featured in an as-yet-unreleased documentary about the Burger Chef case. Yeah, I've met George. He seems like a pretty chill guy. Yeah. (laughs) It was crazy seeing him after 40 years. (laughs) I imagine. That must have been like, like, this is my high school boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, we, we lost complete contact, uh, I guess in, uh, in the end of 79, uh, we moved and, and, uh, my dad didn't want me hanging around him anymore. <laughs> uh, understandably, uh, I know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I remember. Uh, I was curious. You said your uh, dad didn't like you being in a relationship with George. Can you tell us right. why your dad didn't like George? He seems like a nice guy. Well, yeah, he knew we did drugs. Between seeing George, doing drugs, and attending night school, Mary also took up a gig at a restaurant that many of you who are familiar with the case have heard quite a bit about. And then working at Dunkin' Donuts, my dad would take me to work and then come pick me up. That was the Dunkin' Donuts on Crawfordsville Road, right next to the Burger Chef restaurant. The same one where Ruth Shelton worked before transferring to the burger chain. We interviewed Ruth's younger sister, Teresa, last year. And you can hear her story on our first episode. You never can forget the night. We learned from her that Ruth loved working at Duncan. It was a much more friendly, laid-back environment. One time, she even got to ride the mixer for fun. Um, I'm curious, when you were working at the uh, Duncan Donuts, did you uh, did you ever interact with uh, Ruth Shelton? Well, you know, the, um, I, I remember that name, but I don't remember the face. And um, wait. Oh yeah, sorry. You said that was one of the victims. Yeah, that was one of the uh, victims. She used to work at. Oh, Dunkin'. okay, that's right. That's right. Okay, now I remember. Okay, yeah. You know, I don't remember working with her. Um, you know, and come to think of it, you know, I, I don't really remember who I worked with, uh, as far as names and faces. Uh. You know, like I said, that's a real foggy, foggy time for me. That Dunkin' Donuts has come up quite a lot in this case. Many observers have wondered why that particular burger chef was targeted, given that it was located right next door to another eatery that was still open, with all sorts of potential witnesses milling about. On a related note, that Dunkin' is also where an independent witness, an older man sitting down and sipping coffee, spotted Alan Pruitt on the night of the disappearances. The young red-headed man was seen wandering around between the burger chef and the donut shop. We'll talk more about that a bit later, though. Today, if you visit the old abandoned burger chef building, you'll see a discount tobacco store in a small, squat building with a brown roof that sits atop it almost like an oversized hat. That's where the Duncan used to be. Anyways, Mary said she didn't know Ruth, despite the fact they likely worked at Duncan at the same time. And she said she didn't know the other three employees abducted from the Burger Chef either. I know when it happened, I knew some of the names, but uh, if I knew them, I didn't hang around them. uh, It might have just been an acquaintance. Um, you know, I don't remember being friends or, you know, being close to any of them. Earlier, Mary mentioned that her father would take her to and from work, 
1978 had already been a scary year in Speedway, Indiana. Mary was working in what had been the center of a war zone just two months earlier. Between September 1st and September 6th, 1978, eight bombs had gone off around the town. Carl DeLong lost his leg in the final explosion and was grievously injured. A few years later, he died by suicide. In 1981, Brett Kimberlin was convicted of charges related to the bombings. Uh, if I remember right, this was also the time uh, the Speedway bombings were going on. Was that pretty? Uh, was that a scary thing to live through? Uh, you know, I don't remember a whole lot about that. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure it was was very scary, but I, I I don't actually remember too much about that. Uh, I, I do remember people talking uh, about being scared. Uh, and of course, I know my mom and dad had worries. Uh, I actually think dad was worried about me working in that area, if if I recall right. You remember why that was? Well, you know, it might have had to do with the bombings. Uh, And the drugs, you know. But Mary said her father was also concerned over her drug habit. Uh, You know, so they were trying to keep a a tight rein on me. But um, my, my life was just, I was a wild child at that age. Um, so that's really, yeah, and George and I got in, in some trouble and, uh, together. We figured Mary would be a good person to ask about the drug scene back then, on the west side of Indianapolis and its adjacent towns. There's been lots of speculation that the Burger Chef murders went down over a drug debt, stolen drugs, or even drugs getting sold out of the restaurant itself. And I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, you, you mentioned you, you know smoked some pot back then. You know, a lot of kids do that, you know. But back in 78, what was the drug culture in the area like? Were, like, were people, was it just pot or were people doing harder stuff? And, like, what was sort of the scene back then? Okay, well, uh, of course, there was a lot of pot. Uh, now, we did a lot of LSD, too. Uh, <laughs> that was... Uh, pretty available uh and george had the connection and uh he's the one that got it all the time uh but it was uh the microdot i don't know if you've ever heard of any lsd that was called microdot you know there's yellow sunshine uh uh but we did a lot of that um and now there was another it was a white powder and we called it tea but, uh, and I didn't even realize at the time what was in it, but it was a combination of uh, horse tranquilizer and PCP. And I actually ended up ODing on that one night. Um, but those, those were the, the drugs that were pretty available to us in that area at that time. Was it easy to get drugs back then? Oh, yes. Uh, now, of course, George got him. Uh, he's the one that had the connections. Uh, and then I had a brother-in-law uh, that would get drugs. So uh, it was easy for me to get them from, from them. So, I mean, and they, they pretty much had them all the time or could get it any time. You know, just speaking generally, I mean, did you have a sense of, like, who the major drug players were in the area? Like, who was selling? Were there any, you know, groups or individuals who were kind of like, this is where it's all coming from, almost? Right, right. Uh, I don't remember. Now, uh, I remember there was a guy that I went to at Avon High School. Uh, His first name was Aaron. I can't even remember his last name, but um, I know he dealt a lot of weed. Uh, 
as far as any other drugs, I don't know if he, he dealt that. Uh, and really, I I don't know who the, who the, the players were, or I don't remember. No, totally. And and um and I just you know in your memory, uh, what what you do remember, it was that was the drug scene like violent back then, or was it pretty chill generally? I know sometimes it, it kind of can vary based on the region, right? If people are fighting or people are getting hurt, but I mean, what's your recollection? I mean, I remember it being pretty chill. Uh, I don't remember uh, any violence. Uh, Yeah, it seems like there were a couple of guys that were uh, acted like they were badasses. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I don't remember anybody in any fights or, you know, any of that going on. You know, George and I were always pretty chill. Uh, so, no, nah, I, I don't remember. I was wondering, you know... In the indie drug scene, did people ever bring up Burger Chef? Like, oh yeah, that was because Jane owed drug money, or you know, like like rumors and stuff. Like, even if they didn't sound realistic, I was wondering if you ever heard anything like that. See, I don't remember. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there was talk about it. There had to have been. That was that was huge, uh, you know, right there. And but I don't remember any actual conversations. Uh, about it you know I guess I I did think that uh, well that it was had to do with drugs that maybe they did go in there to confront her and try to you know get their money and they didn't want any witnesses uh, so they took all the kids you know that's that's just so tragic so tragic uh, but I, I do think it had something to do with the drug scene. So, finally, the conversation hit the night of the murders, just before midnight on November 17, 1978. People we've asked have said it was a mild evening, warm enough for two young sweethearts to want to spend some time together outside. Uh, what do you remember about that uh, night? Uh, that night, uh, I remember I got off work early, and uh, George lived real close within walking distance. And I called him and told him I had a little bit of time before my dad came and picked me up. So uh, he walked up there real quick, and uh, uh, he had a joint, uh, but he didn't have a light. So he went next door uh to the burger chef to get a light from somebody and I remember him coming back and uh, we were drinking uh, whiskey and smoking that joint and uh, it surprised us I think I was sitting on a milk carton those uh, plastic milk cartons uh, had it turned upside down and was sitting on it and you know we uh, all of a sudden you know I look up and there's these two guys standing there and, uh, of course, our first thought was they were cops, were in trouble. Uh, but they said, uh, uh, do you kids realize there's been a lot of vandalism going on around here? And we're like, well, no, uh, we didn't have anything to do with it. And they said, well, y'all need to go on and get out of here. So, you know, I kind of thought they were uh, might have been undercover cops. Um, and I did not, that's, that's, let's see, then I, George walked me back around to the front of the building, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, and I went inside and sat down. Uh, he went back home, and I just waited for my father. And, you know, it was only about 10 or 15 minutes that I was uh, still there before my father picked me up. Do you have any recollection of, like, about what time this would have been? See, I'm not sure. I'm thinking it it would have had to have been uh, between, 
ten thirty and twelve. Uh, because I, I remember I would work late till ten or eleven. If you go back and listen to "You Never Can Forget the Night," you'll find that George gives a pretty similar account of what happened. It's all there: the late night rendezvous, the whiskey in the joint, George going to the burger chef to ask for matches, an employee, likely Danny Davis, obliging, the two strange men, the ominous question about vandalism, and then the parting of the couple. Do you remember um, when you first heard the news story about when the Burger Chef kids were like missing or like, you know, you kind of you had a normal night, came home from work. At what point were you aware that the you may have been a witness to a, a crime? Okay, I didn't know till uh, the day, not the day after, but uh, let's see, I think it happened on a Friday night, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't know until Sunday when George came into the Dunkin' Donuts. I think those are the right days. So see, it was a whole day and a half that I didn't, I didn't even hear about it. As Mary said, George was the one who alerted police, the Speedway police. At the time, Mary wasn't even sure what the cops made of them. And I wonder, you know, if they thought we were even credible witnesses because we were back there uh, smoking a joint and drinking uh, when the two guys came up to us. But, in fact, the police would take George and Mary seriously. Very seriously. Soon, news reports about witnesses began appearing. Newspapers mentioned a teenage couple that had spotted two men who were, in all likelihood, involved in a quadruple homicide. Police ended up releasing the now-famous sketches of two men based on the accounts of George and Mary. Early news reports also mention a third witness, and we believe that's referring to a young woman named Bridget Petrie. While grabbing a sandwich in the burger shop that night, she saw a bearded man inside the restaurant. In a tragic twist, her brother was later murdered. Detectives and Bridget wondered if there was a connection, but it turned out to be the work of Indianapolis serial killer Herb Baumeister. A few years ago, she told Kevin that she couldn't be sure if the bearded man she saw was even involved. But out of all the witnesses who contributed to the composite sketches, Mary seemed to attract the most interest from police. Different detectives working competing angles of the case kept coming back to her. In 1981, she was even given a polygraph. So over the years, have the police come to you a lot with uh, questions? Uh, they did the first couple of years. Uh, I moved to Tennessee in 1980, uh, and they made a couple of trips down here uh, to interview me. Uh, so, yeah, there was a long period there. I didn't hear anything about it. Oh, no, now there was. I did receive a letter. Oh, let's see. What year was that? That was after. It had to have been... Uh, probably around 2007 or 2008. Uh, I received a letter from a detective uh, asking me if, if, if I would call him and discuss, you know, the case with him, you know, anything I remembered. And uh, I never did call him, um, and I probably should have at that time, but... Uh, things were crazy. Uh, you know, I was a restaurant manager, which is high stress, you know, trying to raise two teenage boys and, uh, and I was scared. I I was scared to get into contact with them. As far as we can tell, that would have happened during the time that Stoney Van was in charge of the case for the Indiana State Police. He had the case for 20 years and was, and still is, a proponent of the robbery gang theory. We discussed that theory in the episode You Never Can Forget the Robbers that we released in 2020. More recently, we looked into that theory in You Never Can Forget the Robberies and You Never Can Forget the Gang in this most recent run of episodes. 
At one point on Todd McComas's 1041 podcast, Van claimed that Mary Ryan had actually pointed out S.W. Wilkins, the senior, who Indiana State Police Detective Ken York posited was a member of this local robbery gang. In a mug book, a large compilation of mug shots taken from local criminals. When Kevin first messaged Mary about this on Facebook, she denied ever identifying anyone. Later, when talking to us for this interview, she said it was possible she'd made an identification. She just wasn't sure. Okay, I'd like to, uh, I asked you something on Facebook, and I'd like to ask uh, again. Uh, I know they showed you, like, pictures of different people in, like, books uh, of pictures. Do you ever remember them ever showing you a picture of somebody and you saying, that's it, that's the person I saw that night? See, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember. Gosh, I wish I could. Oh, that just, I wish I could remember all that. Uh, you know, because I remember going to the police department several times, you know, for interviews. And then one time they hypnotized me, uh, you know, to try to recall everything that happened that night. And, uh, you know, now I don't even remember if I identified somebody. Uh, That does sound vaguely familiar. That does sound familiar, but I can't even uh, visualize the memory of what the picture looked like or who, who it was. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's roco slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We asked Mary to tell us more about the other detectives she interacted with over the years. Let's see, one of them was, uh, oh, he's the retired, uh, he's retired now and he was there for the documentary. Oh, what is his name? I can't even think of it. Is that uh, Kramer? Uh, yeah, yeah, Jim Kramer. Uh, I remember he made a trip down here. Uh, and there was, I think, two other gentlemen. No, one other gentleman with him. Uh, I don't recall his name. I've never been good with names to start with. <laughs> <laughs> and then that long ago... Uh, my memory's not that sharp sometimes. It seems to be getting worse the older I'm getting to. <laughs> we also asked her about one surprising incident we'd heard about involving a shotgun. Do you remember if if ever, you know, police visited I think you and I think I think it would have been in Tennessee where your dad would have been kind of worried about random men showing up and, and sort of maybe potentially greeted them with like a shotgun maybe not realizing who they were at first do you remember any incident like that now i remember that uh where we lived at the time that it happened uh uh in danville indiana uh yeah i remember uh (laughs) them coming out to the house and dad had a shotgun beside the door uh, and even had a, a big heavy chair pulled in front of the door. He was afraid they were going to find out I was a witness, you know, the men that did it, and, you know, come try to hurt me. So, yeah, Dad had a shotgun beside the door, and I remember uh, they came to interview me, and he greeted them with the shotgun. Over the course of their time at the Indiana State Police, Jim Kramer and Donovan Lindsay investigated the angle involving Alan Pruitt. For a refresher, head back to our two episodes from last year. You never can forget the creek, and you never can forget the backbone. Basically, Alan Pruitt was a young guy who was seen wandering around outside of the Dunkin' Donuts on the night of the disappearances. He later told Kramer and Lindsay that he saw the abduction of the Burger Chef employees, and he identified Tim Willoughby, then a missing man, and Jeff Reed as the perps. We've talked to Alan Pruitt a number of times, and he's told us that he now doesn't remember clearly what he saw that night. Uh, See, when they got back in touch with me, uh, they had mentioned before when they first interviewed us that uh, I said there were some uh, certain people uh, there at the Dunkin' Donuts that would have been, uh, you know, druggies or, uh, and now, uh, now I can't even remember their names. I, I don't even remember now who it was I saw in the Dunkin' Donuts before I got off work. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I just don't remember that anymore. We figured we'd help Mary out with the names. Then, uh, I'm curious. Uh, we talked to somebody who told us he was there at Dunkin' Donuts that night. And I was just wondering if I gave you his name, just maybe if it would ring a bell or something, and if you could say, you know, maybe if you remembered him or not. And that was a guy named, uh, I think it was Alan Pruitt. Alan Pruitt. Do you recognize yeah. that? Name? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I remember his face, too. Now, I do believe he was there at the Dunkin' Donuts that night. So what do you remember about seeing him there that night? Just uh, just that he was hanging around, uh, you know, sitting down. I, someone was with him, too. I, oh. oh, I don't remember who was with him. But they were just kind of hanging out. Uh, uh, what did you... Uh, what did you remember? Uh, like, did you know Alan Pruitt, or like, what was he like? Yeah. Uh, in fact, I went to school. Yeah, uh, we went to school there at Avon uh, 
at the same time. Uh, and it, it seems like we hung around some. I mean, we never dated or anything, but, uh, I mean, we were friends. He was in that, he was in that bad crowd, you know, the ones that smoked the pot and drank. <laughs> and that's the crowd I had fallen into. So, yeah, he was definitely in that, in that crowd. Was he a nice guy or like, what was he like personality was? I mean, I remember him being nice. Was he like a, like a tough guy or a friendly guy or? Well, uh, friendly, but also tough at the same time. Uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it was because I was a girl. He was nice to me, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, I mean, he, he came off also as a tough guy. We'll note that Alan Pruitt previously told us that he didn't know Mary Ryan, although she did seem to know him. And the person there with Alan Pruitt that night was a young man named David Adams. We've never been able to get in touch with him. Alan Pruitt told us the two of them were very good friends. Mary turned out to know him, too. Oh, well, yeah. Now, I dated David Adams uh, for a while. Let's see. That Yeah, I dated David Adams before... Uh, before I met George. So, yeah, now he would come up there and hang out a lot. And I believe he he frequent uh, he frequently went to the galaxy. Uh, what was he like? Uh he was nice, but but tried to come off as a, a badass. He had a uh, a green Mustang. It was like a army green uh, Mustang, and you know the fast car. And uh, he was <laughs> tried to act all cool. Uh, we dated for quite a while, um, and then he, he met another girl at the galaxy. And so that broke my heart when he broke up with me, but uh, I got over it real quick. (laughs) (laughs) That's high school for you, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, so there again, I don't remember any actual violence, but, you know, the more I think about it, a lot of the guys that I hung around that was in that crowd tried to act tough and cool were uh david or alan were they into drugs a lot or were they just kind of posers <laughs> no 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 they did they did drugs were they drug dealers or were they just consumers oh uh, see i think david i believe david dealt uh I don't remember uh, specifics on what type of drugs. Well, I remember weed. Uh, that's all I remember. Uh, but I know he he did deal. I don't remember about Alan. And then with um, you know, one thing we've heard, and you know, I'm not sh- I'm not sure if you remember this, but um three years after the murders you told police that you did see David Allen and Alan Pruitt at the restaurant that night um, and that they were big time like drug dealers basically do you do you remember anything like that conversations with the police uh, vaguely uh, there again I, I knew David dealt uh, I don't remember now uh, you know if they were just small time or or if they were you know big time drug dealers uh, I don't remember that now uh, you know they probably were for <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean I do remember seeing them that that too was with uh, Pruitt 
that night was uh, David. Were you, David Adams. Mm-hmm. Were you scared of them? Is that why you didn't tell police immediately that you were that they were there? That I I don't know. Uh, I I don't remember actually being scared of them, but uh, didn't want to be uh, be a narc. You know, I didn't want them to get in trouble. And then, well, I guess I was kind of scared of them. <laughs> I don't know what they would have done if, you know, if I had said something. Do you happen to remember any other folks that they would have, uh, David and Alan would have hung out with, like, you know, in Avon or like other buddies of theirs who you might have known? Uh,. <sighs> Just, uh, I remember Aaron. I cannot remember his last name. Uh, Was he in your grade? Aaron was, yes. And he was one of those, uh, there was a convenience store to the, uh, beside Avon High School. Uh, we'd always walk over there and smoke cigarettes. Uh, Aaron, I cannot remember his last name. And I know there there was several, you know, people in that crowd, but I I can't tell you now who it was or their names or I just don't remember. Is the Dunkin' Donuts on Crawfordsville Road suddenly starting to sound a bit crowded? To recap, we have Dunkin' employee Mary Ryan, her current boyfriend, George Nichols, her ex-boyfriend, David Adams, and Adams's good friend, Alan Pruitt, all hanging around there that night, the night that the crew next door went missing. We'll also say that sources have told us about whispers of the Burger Chef murders being part of some kind of inside job robbery. Also that Pruitt spoke of hearing that the Burger Chef, the Dunkin' Donuts, and the American Inn across the street, he called it the Golden Eagle, nicknamed for a decoration that adorned the building, were all supposed to get hit that night. You hear things about the lights flashing on and off in the Duncan, of Pruitt telling his mother something heavy is going down at the Speedway Burger Chef as he came home at the end of Johnny Carson at 1 a.m. that night. You begin to wonder... Is there a reason that so many people ended up claiming to see so little as they hung out so close to the burger chef? Or is this all just a series of coincidences? Anyways, we also ran the names Tim Willoughby and Jeffrey by Mary. The former attended Avon High School, just like Jane Freak and Alan Pruitt. Mary said the names sounded familiar, but she couldn't quite place them. In one instance, perhaps to try to help jog her memory, law enforcement agents actually tried an avant-garde technique on Mary. It would have been thrown out in court, but perhaps they were hoping it could jog her memory and generate new leads. I only remember bits and pieces of, of them interviewing me. I remember when they hypnotized me. Uh... One? Oh, yeah. Kevin, go ahead. You say you remember when they hypnotized you? Can you tell us what that was like? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was quite interesting. Uh, I think they concluded, though, I'm, it helped me to remember some things. I do know that. Uh, it was... Uh, yeah. It, it was... Uh, pretty neat the way he hypnotized me uh, you know started off walking through the woods and on the beach well ahead of time they asked me some things that I liked or, or liked to do so he incorporated that into hypnotizing me uh, anyway it, it was pretty interesting so I, I just felt like it was it was a dream but I was able to recall 
like uh, cars that were there, uh, you know, people I saw. So, but now, now I don't remember the results of that. I don't remember, (laughs) I don't remember what he helped me to remember. (laughs) And actually, the person who hypnotized Mary remembers her too. We recently spoke with Virgil Vandergriff, a longtime investigator with the Marion County Sheriff's Department. He worked the Burgershev case early on. I'm curious, in general, what is it? What process do you go through when you like hypnotize a witness? Oh, lengthy. Um, well, first of all, you got to make sure they're cooperative and, and try to get them in a proper frame of mind. If person's not is skeptical about hypnosis, etc. It's not going to be successful. Um, so you have to get them in the right frame of mind uh, to be oh, uh, agreeable to even do it and be cooperative in the process. <coughs> and once you get them, once you get them to that point, the hardest thing about all of that is watching how you ask them about something because during hypnosis a person is extremely suggestible and if you ask a question in a suggestive way there is a possibility they're going to answer um, in a way that's not going to be accurate. Right. So uh, sometimes it was frustrating that you know in your mind what you're looking for <laughs> and you want to say well, what was a blue car <laughs> and you can't say that you know um, so anyway and sometimes it you know like there was one case I worked on where a gal gave me a description of a, a car etc and and after we got done with it, we were looking at everything and all that. And finally, I said, "Oh shit!" And they said, "What?" And I said, "She's describing the police detective car." Oh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> you know, and that's what it was. She was describing the police detective car. When I said, <laughs> <laughs> "So frustrating." Yeah. So anyway. Uh, and so with hypnosis, you got to be real careful, but... Do you happen to remember anything specific about when you hypnotized the witnesses in this case? No, not really. Um, you know, I mean, they were typical witnesses. I mean, you know, nothing outstanding. Did they seem credible to you? Well, yes, but... You know, were the guys really suspects, or did they just happen to be there in the area right. at the time? That that was, you know, really couldn't say for sure they were suspects. They were definitely in the area at the time, but you know. Now here's the part of the episode where we'll stop and tell you to listen up. What Mary's about to say is very important in our view. Uh, you did say you have a pretty good memory of what the faces of the men you saw look like. Uh, I was curious, yeah. uh, are the sketches pretty accurate? Uh, no. That's right. Mary said the sketches were not accurate. And there was a reason for that. She lied to the sketch artist. No. Uh, no. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this. Uh, see, I was so scared, uh, on the, now the bearded man is closer to, uh, it's more realistic, but the clean shaven man, I intentionally did that just a little bit different because I was thinking if (laughs) then he's going to know I was a witness or, you know, that I knew he was there. So I intentionally made that face a little bit longer 
uh, again, I'm embarrassed to say that I did that. Uh, are there are there any other things you regret about like what happened or like you know with the investigation or anything like that? Well, I guess that's mainly it. Uh, you know, if, if I had said something about you know who I saw. Uh, maybe things could have turned out different. Maybe they could have caught who did it. Uh, maybe that would that would have helped their investigation. Uh, now I know the Burger King had already been cleaned up uh, because they didn't realize the employees coming in the next day did not realize that they had been kidnapped. So they went on, you know. So the restaurant was already cleaned. Uh, to my understanding, uh, you know, so I guess that did away with fingerprints or, or any kind of evidence that might have been there. But uh, I guess if I had spoke up, maybe maybe things could have turned out different as far as catching who did it. You know, I've, I've thought about it so much and that, that always bothered me. Uh, but, you know, as a 16-year-old uh, scared <laughs> scared kid you know and I, I I didn't know what to do you know at the time and uh but that's always bothered me Mary told us she had a reason for lying she said she and George did indeed see two men that night and that the bearded man sketch is pretty accurate but she's convinced about the identity of the clean-shaven man she encountered and seeing that person terrified her I was a wreck over that I really was I wish I had shared my thoughts with someone you know at least my parents uh, and I'm sure they would have guided me you know on what to do but you know at that age again you know I was one to keep stuff bottled up um, had a hard time talking about things we even asked Virgil Vandergriff if it would have been possible for Mary to be dishonest about the sketches under hypnosis. Interesting question. Can they do that? Well, I suppose they could. It'd be unlikely, but that they could um, you know they would they would almost have to be almost faking the hypnosis uh, you know and uh, but uh, uh, usually you know I'll do certain things to make sure they're not faking um, The, the, the biggest thing I always told any investigator, you know, when I worked on something, is that um, anything I come up with has to be verified. If you can't verify it, then you can't say that it's factual. So um, I think the only thing I can say about all the people I interviewed, most of what they described was consistent. So I felt that overall, the interviews with all of them was consistent in being accurate with what we were putting down. Um, you know, everybody was reluctant to put out anything because we didn't know for sure that they were even involved. You know, we just knew they were in the area. And we didn't want to get people, we didn't want to waste a lot of time uh, chasing down phony leads. Right, right. <laughs> I'm sure you got a lot of those. Yeah. Mary did tell us the name of the person she said she saw. We are very well aware of this person, actually, and we've even talked to him. But we're not going to name him. Mary asked us not to. But also, honestly, and with all respect to Mary, 
we're doubtful about her information. You'll remember that in several previous episodes this year, we had no problem with naming the members of the robbery gang, Tim Piccioni, Greg Steinke, and John Deffenbaugh. That's because these men were convicted on robbery charges and previously had their names made public in newspaper articles and court documents. Even if they're innocent of the killings, they're still convicted criminals who traumatized a lot of teenagers working in fast food restaurants. In the case of the man Mary said she saw, he's never been convicted on charges that seem to indicate he was involved in the Burger Chef murders. We'd need much more if we were going to name someone who's never been charged with a violent crime as far as we can tell. Given the fact she struggles to recall so much of her past, it's hard to trust this particular memory. Plus, we're aware of how she came to remember this person. And with that in mind, we think it's highly possible that a well-intentioned researcher who is enthusiastic about a certain theory ended up putting this idea in her head many years after the fact. Curious about what she might say, we asked Mary to speculate and share her own theory of the Burger Chef murders beyond her own personal person of interest. You know, I guess I I did think that, uh, well, that it was had to do with drugs. That maybe they did go in there to confront her and try to, you know, get their money and they didn't want any witnesses uh, so they took all the kids you know, that's that's just so tragic, so tragic uh, but I, I do think it had something to do with the drug scene. Speaking to Mary, it's clear that she's had a hard life in many respects. She told us a little about the impetus behind her breakup with George and the path her life followed since that time. In fact, uh, George was the one that uh, gave me the drugs that I overdosed on. And I guess that was the uh, beginning of 79 that that happened. Uh, I overdosed. And uh, when they took me to the hospital, George wouldn't tell them, uh, you know, what I took. And... uh, Anyways, I think he finally said something, uh, but put the blame on me, said I had gotten some drugs and I tried to give some to him. And, you know, that wasn't the story. You know, he's the one that got the drugs and gave them to me. Anyways, it was after that, uh, Dad did not want me to see him. An overdose sounds pretty serious. How bad was it? Yeah, it was pretty serious. Uh, in fact, my heart stopped, uh, and they had to defibrillate. Well, you know what I'm trying to say, defibrillate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I used the defibrillator on me, uh, you know, to get my heart started again. So, yeah, it was pretty serious. Uh, you know, after that happened, I went into uh, uh, rehab for 30 days, and... Uh, you know, I've kind of been, I was kind of in and out of that, uh, you know, the drugs until I guess I was about 30. That's when I made a serious attempt at getting clean and sober. So, uh, I mean, I made it. <laughs> and like I'm glad George. <laughs> yeah, I think George has five years now. So, you know, I'm glad he's doing well. Uh, we talk all the time. In fact, uh, I took him on our vacation uh, back in the end of August. We went to Florida, uh, him and my youngest son, which my youngest son is 29. But we had a blast. <laughs> this sounds like a lot <laughs> rode of fun. A heli- yeah, I rode a helicopter for the first time. And uh, it was the first time my son had been to the beach. So he was... Uh, in awe over that. Yeah, we had a real good time. That's great that you guys reconnected after all these years. I know! (laughs) It is. It really is crazy. (laughs) To get back to the investigative side of things, 
we've always been sketch skeptics. So often in this case, people will talk about suspects who were dead ringers for one of the two sketches, sometimes both. But what does that even mean? The vague drawings resemble so many different people. For us, Mary's admission is a major blow to the importance of the sketches. Even if we assume George and Bridget described the men to the best of their abilities, the idea that Mary purposely botched her description calls the whole thing into question. For her part, Mary said she felt bad about what she'd done, and she regretted not clearing things up decades earlier. I just really wish I could go back and and, uh, and, and say what I saw that night. I mean, that bothers me to this day. Well, I wish I could remember more, and, you know, I'm not I'm not proud of, the you know, the person I was, the drugs and the alcohol and, and all that, uh, but, you know, I've... I've When I started getting clean and sober, that's when I learned to start being honest. (laughs) Uh, You know, I know a lot of people go through it. I'm not the only one. Still, Mary said she remembers the faces, the real faces, of the men who she said accosted her and George. It's hard to part with such a haunting image. Two teenagers, young, in love, a little bit high, sitting near some old railroad tracks. Two shadows drawn closer in the darkness, and then emerging into the dim light cast by the nearby restaurants. But you've got to wonder, did that even really happen? Were those two men ever real? Or are they just conjurings from a story? Strokes from a sketch artist's pencil? Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>